0: Around this time of year, you'll often find the movie It's a Wonderful Life, starring Jimmy Stewart and Donna Reed. In fact, it's playing at the Bird Theater tonight at 7 p.m. At any rate, Stewart plays George Bailey, who has spent his entire life giving to the people of Bedford Falls. All that prevents rich Mr. Potter from taking over the entire town is George's modest building and loan company. But on Christmas Eve, the business's $8,000 is lost and George's troubles begin. So he wishes that he had never been born, and an angel named Clarence shows him what things would be like if that were true. One time years ago during a leaders meeting, Mary Haller was out of town and joined the meeting on her iPad, except there were some connection issues and Rabbi David Rudolph was trying to hear her and ended up accidentally recreating a scene from It's a Wonderful Life. This is the scene where George Bailey sees his wife, except in this alternate reality, they never got married. Mary, speak to me, Mary. Mary, don't you know me, Mary? So that's what uh, Rabbi David Rudolph was saying to uh, to Mary Haller. I bring this up for, for several reasons. One, because today is Christmas, so I figured I'd mention a classic Christmas movie because that's a pretty Jewish thing to do on Christmas. And second, because there's another Mary... In this week's Parsha, except in Hebrew, Mary comes out as Miriam. Miriam here is shown to be a dynamic young woman. In fact, there are not just one, not just two, but Miriam is one of six dynamic women in this week's Parsha. And reason number three to mention it's a wonderful life. I know that if any of these amazing women had said, I wish I hadn't been born, our hero Moses and the children of Israel would be in deep trouble. And uh, perhaps uh, an angel like Clarence would have to show them how important they were uh, to, uh, to this story. Now let's take a look at Exodus 1, starting in verse 15, and I'll play the part of the evil pharaoh. Moreover, the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Sifra, and the other Puah, and said, "'When you help the Hebrew women during childbirth, look at the sex. If it's a son, then kill him.' But if it's a daughter, she may live. Yet the midwives feared God, so they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? Let the boys live. The midwives told Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are like animals, and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied, growing very numerous, because the because the midwives feared or respected God he gave them families of their own but pharaoh charged all his people saying you are to cast every son that is born into the river but let every daughter live so we see some civil disobedience here with the midwives deliberately defying an order of death because of their calling to bring life into the world and their respect for God, means that they are standing up to the forces of death and chaos. Here, represented by uh, Pharaoh, even if it's the king of Egypt that they're up against, uh, they're still uh, brave. The Torah says that their reverence for God is the basis of their preserving life, uh, the lives, the lives of these Hebrew babies. It's also an example of when it's okay to bend the truth for the preservation of life notice they they kind of bend the truth to the pharaoh oh the the uh the hebrew women uh, give birth uh early uh, they give birth uh too quickly for us to uh to abort uh the male babies at the very center of jewish ethics is the concept of pekuach nefesh literally it means watching over a soul figuratively it means preserving or saving a life it refers to the innate value of human life this ethical concept supersedes almost all other commandments in Judaism. So, for example, uh, you would uh, violate Shabbat in order to save a life, uh, which is why you know an observant Jewish doctor might work uh, on Shabbat in an emergency room because that that supersedes uh, the commandment to to rest uh, to to save lives. The principle of pekuach nefesh preserving life, is derived originally from foundational Torah texts. One is that we are all made in the image of God, and another commandment is not to stand by the blood of your neighbor. Regarding the first one, because both male and female are created in the image of God in creation, and uh, physical male and female images are different, right? So the rabbi said, well, this is probably... Uh, Not to be interpreted literally because, you know, male and female are different physical images, but they're both in the image of God somehow. So what's going on? It points, therefore, to the innate value of human life. We carry within us the divine spark and uh, we have immense inherent value and honor and glory are upon all of humanity. Uh, We're all made in the image of God, you know, differently abled, the elderly, the young, the young marginalized, are made in the image of God. Outcasts, our enemies, or anyone we think of as other, they are made in the image of God and have the divine spark. Rabbi Irving Greenberg wrote a translation and commentary of Perkei Avot, uh, The Ethics of the Fathers, which includes ethical sayings foundational to the Mishnah and Jewish thought, and it's all based on scripture. Uh, In the commentary, Rabbi Greenberg mentions how profoundly foundational this scripture and the principle that is derived from it are. Rabbi Rabbi Akiva said, love your neighbor as yourself, summarizes the whole Torah. Ben Azai said that humanity's being created in the image of God is even more fundamental. And so uh, we draw from these texts like Perkei Avot, uh, which are based on scripture and are foundational in Judaism to tell us that we are uh, made in the image of God and how foundational that is. And so the midwives go so far as to deceive the king of Egypt in order to do what? To preserve life. This is similar to when Corrie ten Boom and her family deceived the Nazis in order to keep safe the Jews that were hiding in their home for pekuach nefesh, the preservation of life. Or Harriet Tubman deceived authorities in order to protect enslaved African Americans and bring them to safety in the northern United States. Esther refrained from revealing her identity right away as a Jew in order to protect Jews, to right the wrong committed by Haman to kill all of the Jews in Shushan. So we have met. Uh, The first two dynamic women who put themselves in danger, the two midwives, by defying the king in order to preserve life, just like Esther, Harriet Tumman, and Corrie ten Boom who came after them. Let's meet some more in this week's Parsha, some more dynamic women from Exodus 2. Now a man from the house of Levi took as his wife a daughter of Levi. The woman conceived and gave birth to a son. Now, when she saw that he was delightful, she hid him for three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she took a basket or mini-arc of papyrus reeds. This is, I say mini ark because it's the same word as the ark that Noah built, and coated it with tar and pitch, just like Noah, put the child inside, and laid it in the reeds by the bank of the Nile. His sister stood off at a distance to see what would happen to him. Let's uh, remember that because we're going to come back to uh, his sister in a moment. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe while her maidens walked along by the riverside. When she saw the basket or mini ark among the reeds, she sent her handmaiden to fetch it. When she opened it, she saw the child, a baby boy crying. She had compassion on him and said, this is one of the Hebrew children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, should I go and call a nurse from the Hebrews to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter told her, go. So the girl, this is Miriam, Moses' sister, went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child and nurse him for me, and I will pay you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. After the boy grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. So she named him Moses, saying, because I drew him out of the water. So we have Miriam being an awesome older sister especially compared to the older siblings we've seen so far, like in Joseph's generation, right? What's the opposite of throwing your younger brother down a well and leaving him for dead, selling him into slavery, and lying to your father about it? The opposite of that would be protecting him, advocating for him, making sure he's okay in the mini-arc and watching, and then advocating uh, to Pharaoh's daughter for him so that he can be nourished. The phrase in the Torah that Miriam stood at a distance watching the mini ark with Moses inside it shows compassion. And it shows that she is truly her brother's keeper, unlike these other uh, examples that we've seen of the older sibling. Uh, then she advocates to Pharaoh's daughter, as I mentioned, and arranges for Moses' own mother to nurse him and to get paid for doing so. This isn't the the focus of the sermon, but we notice here the the awesome provision that Moses' mother gets paid to to nurse him and to to nourish him and take care of him. It's it's really, uh, really remarkable. Some Jewish sources say that Miriam was only about six or seven years older than Moses. So imagine a six or seven year old girl standing at the riverside Caring for and advocating for her younger brother to the Pharaoh's daughter, and think about the courage of Moses's mother. First, she entrusts her child to God, literally by letting him go and placing him in the mini ark, and then second, she entrusts him to Pharaoh's daughter uh, when he's adopted into that family. So she's, you know, gives him to the Lord. Uh, she trusts trust God with her, with her son. And, uh, and Pharaoh's daughter totally defying her father's orders. We just heard he said, well, it's not working uh, with the midwives, so just kill all the Hebrew male babies. And she's deliberately uh, disguising this Hebrew baby and adopting a Moses into her family uh, in defiance of her father. Focusing again on Miriam, the midrash on her fills in the gaps on what was possibly going on here. When I say midrash, I'm talking about uh, Jewish uh, thought that fills in the gaps because sometimes the Bible is very terse or very uh, very brief in in what it explains. So uh, over the years, the rabbis filled in on what possibly happened or probably happened in between to explain uh, what was going on in the Bible, and so these are. From helpful writings that are not—they're not at the level of scripture uh, of of being inspired, um, inspired writing, God-breathed writing—but they are helpful uh, to understand the scripture, which is God-breathed. So anyway, so uh, this is a midrash about Miriam. Remember, Miriam becomes a prophetess who leads a song when her younger brother delivers the children of Israel through the Red Sea. She she has her own song. So the sages imagine that she prophesied over Moses as the future deliverer of their people because she was, she was always a prophet. Her younger brother would surpass her to become a savior and leader. And usually in, in, in Genesis anyway, that would make the older sibling jealous. But rather than become jealous, what did she do? She became protective and compassionate. She's really a remarkable woman. Uh, and this is what the rabbinic sages imagine what was going on in their family. This is from Sota, twelve a verses nine through twelve in the Talmud, which is a and it has a midrash about Miriam. The verse states, and there went, uh, there went a man of the house of Levi and took for a wife a daughter of Levi. The Gemara asks, to where did he go? Rav Yehuda ben uh, Bar Zavina says he went according to the advice of his daughter Miriam, as the Gemara will proceed to explain. A sage teaches, Amram, the father of Moses, was a great man of his generation. Once he saw that the wicked Pharaoh said, Every son that is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. He said, We are laboring for nothing by bringing children into the world to be killed. Therefore he arose and divorced his wife. All others who saw this followed his example and arose and divorced their wives. His daughter Miriam said to him, Father, your decree is, far, is more harsh than for the Jewish people than that of Pharaoh, as Pharaoh decreed only with regard to the males, but you decreed on both the males and the females. And now, no children will be born. Additionally, Pharaoh decreed to kill them only in this world, but you decreed in this world and the world to come, as those not born will never enter the world to come. Miriam continued, Additionally, concerning Pharaoh the wicked, it is uncertain whether his decree will be fulfilled, and it is uncertain if his decree will not be fulfilled. You are a righteous person, and as such, your decrees will certainly be fulfilled, as it is stated with regard to the righteous." You shall also decree a thing, and it shall be established unto you. Amram accepted his daughter's words and arose and brought back, i.e. remarried, his wife, and all others who saw this followed his example and arose and brought back their wives. So this Midrash fills in the gaps, and, and it states perhaps the Israelite men were divorcing their wives out of fear that they would have male children and then the Pharaoh would kill them. So Miriam here is encouraging her father... Amram, also the father of Moses, of course, not to act out of fear, but to trust God because she knew that her younger brother would be the savior of the Jewish people, and so her father should continue to be fruitful with his wife. The Talmud also imagines this scenario, delving into the motivation for Miriam watching her baby brother in the river. Remember that scene where she's standing by the river watching the mini ark. This is from Megillah 14a. But once Moses was cast into the river, her father arose and rapped her on the head, whap, saying to her, My daughter, where is your prophecy now? As it looked as though the young Moses would soon meet his end. This is in the meaning of that which is written with regard to Miriam's watching Moses in the river, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him, i.e. to know what would be with the end of her prophecy, as she had prophesied that her brother was destined to be the savior of the Jewish people. So you can see that she's showing concern and care that her her prophecy comes true and that and that and Moses is indeed a safe and grows up to be uh, the deliverer of the Jewish people. Sometimes even when we speak life and advocate for life, we're not immediately rewarded, but a prophetic encourager is uh, not. Uh, dismayed by obstacles, they they show compassion despite the obstacles. As we spoke about last week, those who are strongly prophetic speak life. Like my pastor in Mississippi, who always said to me, "David, you demand." Da so we have seen the two Hebrew midwives, Moses's mother, adopted mother. And sister, all advocating and bringing life, speaking up for the vulnerable, showing compassion through action, defying evil authority courageously, and being agents of God's purpose to flourish his good world. That makes five dynamic women, but I promised you six, and there's another in this Parsha, Moses' wife. So there's a mysterious passage uh, here. Moses fails to circumcise his sons and uh, bringing them into the covenant of Abraham. And his wife, Sipporah, saves his life like this in Exodus 4:24 verses 26. And if you've read this before, it's it's quite unusual, but uh, we'll try to unpack it a little bit. It happened along the way at a lodging place that Adonai met him and sought to kill him. But Sipporah took a flint cut off the foreskin of her son, threw it at his feet, saying, you are surely a bridegroom of blood to me. She said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Then he let him alone. I think it's helpful here uh, to look at the JPS Torah commentary on this strange passage. This is what they say, quote, there is a functional correspondence between the blood of circumcision and the visible sign of the blood uh, on the Passover sacrifice. Remember, they're both Using blood. In both instances, uh, evil is averted on account of it. Uh, This inextricable tie between circumcision and the Passover, as plainly set forth uh, later in chapter 12, is also unmistakably operative in chapter 5 of the book of Joshua. It is related there that after crossing the Jordan into the promised land, a mass circumcision ceremony was performed as a prelude to the first celebration of the Passover feast inside the country. Rabbinic exegesis gave midrashic expression to this association in interpreting Ezekiel 16, when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you, live in spite of your blood. Yes, I said to you, live in spite of your blood. The Hebrew phrase, in your blood live, uh, uh, emphatically reiterated, was interpreted by the rabbis to mean survive through your blood. Uh, That is, survival and redemption of Israel was assured because of the two commandments, one of circumcision and the other of the Passover sacrifice. Uh, And this is my comment, but we know that the life is in the blood. Uh, It should be noted uh, that Genesis 17 made circumcision the indispensable precondition for entering the community of Israel. So to sum up, the brief narrative in verses 24 to 26 underscores how important it is, uh, uh, underscores the paramount importance of the institution of circumcision and the surpassing seriousness of its neglect, unquote. So it's showing uh, the importance of circumcision, and it's showing that the life is in the blood, and it's making a connection to uh, the blood of the Passover lamb, which averts uh, death and brings life. And we also see how Zipporah, who is not among Israel, administers this covenant of blood to once again bring life to Moses and to their children. Remember, the life is in the blood, and these are women who protect, create, and advocate for life. So we've mentioned now six dynamic women who brought life and compassion and covenant into the world to bless and protect Moses and the Israelites. But any list of six women is not complete. And needs, of course, a seventh. You know, there is another Miriam that we admire and talk about. Today, of course, in the wider body of Messiah, we are celebrating the birth of Yeshua to another dynamic Miriam. When you read most Bibles, it says her name is Mary, but in Hebrew, of course, it's Miriam. And we know that's not an accident, it's a reference to the dynamic Miriam, the sister of Moses, who partner with God. <clears throat> who partnered with God for life, compassion, and rescuing. Here is a bit of that narrative. This is a part of the Christmas story, the birth of Yeshua, and it includes what's called the Magnificat in Christian tradition, the the praise that Miriam gives, uh, the mother of Yeshua, in which we see the themes of Exodus all over again. So this is from the first chapter of Luke's gospel. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city in the Galilee called Nazareth, To a virgin engaged to a man named Yosef of the house of David. The virgin's name was Miriam. Approaching her, the angel said, Shalom, favored lady, Adonai is with you. She was deeply troubled by his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. The Lord said to her, Don't be afraid, Miriam, for you have found favor with God. Look, you will become pregnant, you will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Yeshua. He will be great. He will be called Son of HaElyon, God Most High. Adonai, God, will give him the throne of his forefather David, and he will rule the house of Yaakov forever. There will be no end to his kingdom. How can this be, asked Miriam of the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered her, The Ruach HaKodesh will come over you. The power of Ha HaElyon will cover you. Therefore, the holy child born to you will be called the Son of God. And then she has... Uh, An amazing interaction with uh, her relative, Elisheva, Elizabeth. uh, And they they meet each other and uh, rejoice together. And then Miriam gives uh, the Magnificat. My soul magnifies Adonai, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, who has taken notice of his servant girl in her humble position. For imagine it, from now on all generations will call me blessed. The Mighty One has done great things for me. Indeed, his name is holy, and in every generation he has mercy on those who fear him. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm, routed the secretly proud, brought down rulers from their thrones, raised up the humble, filled the hungry with good things, but sent the rich away empty. He has taken the part of his servant Israel, mindful of the mercy which he promised to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. So here we see that Miriam... Mary, the mother of Yeshua, is called upon to literally bring life and salvation into the world and to repeat the themes of the Exodus, bringing down the proud and raising up the humble. Think of a dynamic woman in your life, someone who thinks about the vulnerable and needy, a woman who speaks life into situations where there was despair, a woman who is not passive but active, who advocates for life. Maybe she loves to pray and help others. Maybe she is good at encouraging others one-on-one. Maybe she speaks prophetic words of encouragement like Miriam. Maybe she advocates for life like Cory ten Boom. Maybe she protects and nourishes the vulnerable children or elderly or hurting like the Hebrew midwives. Maybe she is your sister, your wife, your mother, your friend. Maybe she is you. First, we need to honor these dynamic women in our lives verbally. We need to honor those to whom honor is due. And second, we need to learn from them, especially us men. You know, the men in this Parsha did not bring life, unfortunately. We see Pharaoh. What is he doing? He's killing Hebrew babies. And then we see Moses in this Parsha. What is he doing? He gets upset with an Egyptian who is mistreating his fellow Israelite and kills him and murders him, tries to, to hide the body. In the Midrash, Moses' father is reluctant to bring forth life. I mean, come on, guys. So what can we as men learn from these life-giving women, like Mary, the mother of Yeshua, like Harriet Tubman, and like the women who are here in the sanctuary and on the Zoom call and the women that are listening to the podcast? I want to encourage all of us, men and women, to learn from these dynamic, life-giving women to see how they reflect the image of God to affirm that with honor and to be conformed more and more to the image of God. All of us. Remember, if these women are made in the image of God, then Kalva chomer how much more do we trust in God who does all of these things in a greater way? Think about it. We trust God, who what does God do? He creates life just like these women, just like Miriam, the mother of Yeshua. We trust God who restores like these women are restoring. God cares for the vulnerable, the babies, the orphans, the widow, right? Just like these women care for the vulnerable baby um, Moses in the Parsha, and God rescues us from our sins the way that these women rescued Moses from uh, from the, the the river and uh, inside the uh, the Ark of of, of God's protection. Um, when we When we are vulnerable babies in a mini ark in the chaotic river of life, remember, God is looking out for us, just like Miriam did, making sure we land safely and have nourishment. God is looking out. And Miriam was looking out because she is made in the image of God. That's why we thank God for every meal, because he provides for us. When we say God is merciful, we use the Hebrew word rachamim, which is tender mercies. But this word is related to the Hebrew word for womb or rachem, signifying that God is a nurturer, right? That in some ways his mercy is like a womb. When we say that God is El Shaddai, uh, figuratively it means God the provider. We've heard this term before. But literally the word Shaddai most likely refers to a shad, which is the breast. Remember that's of course, what nourishes a baby that can't provide for it for itself? You know, God is above gender, of course. So these word images are not literal, um, but they show that women are made in the image of God, and therefore, when women walk in their calling, their life-giving calling, they reflect a piece of who God is, and it, uh, so it means we find this life-giving character in God because. Genesis says that men and women are made in the image of God. So as we honor dynamic women in our lives, and as we learn from them, this should draw us nearer to honoring the Lord.